This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello, welcome to the program and thank you for joining us today. I recently read an article from Yes Magazine called Could Our Deepest Fears Hold the Key to Ending Violence? by Francis Moore LaPay. The magazine being American, the article is based on the American experience, but its, met, its message is pretty universal, particularly in light of the influence America has had on the rest of the world. So please keep that in mind as we discuss it. LaPay starts her article like this. In his book Violence, psychologist James Gilligan asks a Massachusetts prison inmate, what do you want so badly that you would sacrifice everything in order to get it? The inmate declared, pride, dignity, self-esteem, and I'll kill every MFA in that cell block if I have to in order to get it. Or, as another inmate said, I've got to have my self-respect, and I've declared war on the whole world till I get it. Pride, dignity, respect, agency, a sense that we matter, these are feelings largely shaped interpersonally. We depend upon the social fabric to get them. But for many, these things are in tatters. Fewer and fewer of us feel a sense of belonging, and we're more and more preoccupied with a desperate scramble for belongings. We see fears face everywhere, whether in a Congress debating assault weapons or in schools introducing lockdown drills. French philosopher Patrick Vivere has called fear the emotional plague of our planet. For most species, fear is key to survival. Sensing danger, a healthy animal experiences instantaneous physical changes that enable it to escape. Then, once the threat has passed, the impala literally shakes off its fear and runs back to join its group. But could it be that for human animals, fear itself has become a danger? To explore the possibility, a place to start is asking what humans fear most. It is the loss of standing with others, the fear of being cast out by the tribe. Rather than being hyper-individualists, Homo sapiens are profoundly social creatures, the most social of all species. This sense of standing is inseparable from trust. To thrive, we need to trust that we count in the eyes of others, and will therefore be treated with respect. In a word, our fear is loss of dignity. Almost equal is our fear of powerlessness. Human beings need to feel that we make a difference. Social psychologist Eric Fromm argued in the heart of man that what characterized man is that he is driven to make his imprint on the world. And later, he dismissed Descartes' axiom about a human essence centered in thought declaring instead, I am because I effect. 
When these essential needs for connection and agency are unmet, we go nuts. We try to get respect by whatever means possible. If peaceful means seem closed off, violence it is. Lape goes on to point out that historically, inequality in the world, that is the gap between the rich and the poor, has never been as great as it is now. She quotes a Washington Post article that claims that in 2010, the top 1% garnered 93% of all income gains. This statistic is backed up by Forbes magazine, which each year calculates the wealth of the world's billionaires. In March 2011, Forbes found that the world's billionaires of that time, which numbered 1,210, had a combined wealth equal to half of the total wealth of the world's 3.01 billion adults, who, according to Credit Suisse, held under $10,000 in net worth. Such stats do not indicate harmony among us. Lappe also quotes Professors Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, authors of The Spirit Level, Why More Equal Societies Almost Always Do Better, when she notes that in large-scale communities, high levels of trust are linked to low levels of inequality. But in competitive Western societies, we are encouraged to constantly outmaneuver the competition, whether it be business rivals or wealthy neighbors. Lapai writes, Trapped in a giant game of musical chairs, we run faster and faster to edge out the guy ahead. With economic rules that increasingly concentrate wealth, we know we could be the next one kicked out, no matter how quick our pace. So we take on debt, juggle three jobs, cheat in school, whatever it takes to stay in. And our children are most sensitive to this fear of exclusion. Those who felt bullied, unable to fit in, misunderstood, without a voice in those most social of places, schools, are more likely to become psychotic and violent, including against themselves. In a culture of fear of disconnection, those at the bottom feel most dismissed and discounted. Adam Smith, the supposed but misunderstood champion of the market more than two centuries ago, grasped the devastating power of exclusion. Poverty, he wrote in his Theory of Moral Sentiments, places a person out of the sight of mankind. To feel that we are taken no notice of necessarily damps the most agreeable hope of human nature. In this vein, joblessness isn't just about money. It's about loss of membership. Martin Luther King once said that in our society it is murder psychologically to deprive a man of a job or an income. You are in substance saying to that man he has no right to exist. And that's exactly how many feel. A rise of 1% in joblessness in the United States is accompanied by an increase of roughly 1% in the suicide rate. In our world of increasing inequalities, suicide now claims more lives than homicide and war combined. Americans own more than 4 in 10 of the world's privately held guns and two-thirds of U.S. gun deaths are suicides. Lape also points out that when people feel powerless, often they take their frustration out on those less powerful than, than themselves. She notes that since the recession began in 2007, the number of U.S. children who have died due to mistreatment has risen by 20% to more than five a day. Thus, she says, our culture of fear 
gets passed down from one generation to another. It's not that we've become too selfish or individualistic, but that we've lost touch with how social we truly, truly are, she claims, and writes, Easing the fear at the root of so much pain and violence that generates more fear, from suicide to child abuse to school massacres, comes as we embrace the obvious. We are creatures who, in order to thrive individually, depend on inclusive communities in which all can thrive. Freedom starts there. We build it by standing up for rules on which inclusive, trusting community depends. Fair rules, for example, that keep wealth circulating and strictly out of public decision-making, and rules that ensure decent jobs for all. This pathway out of a violence-soaked culture is no foreign-ism. It's what's proven essential to our species thriving. Communities of trust, without which we destroy not just others, but ourselves as well. It's interesting that the solution just suggested by this article is based on greater economic equality and an implied hands-off system of government. I have no doubt that in terms of wealth, a more equitable society would ensure more widespread happiness and less violence and dissatisfaction. But as long as desire and greed are part of our psyche, it will be difficult to prevent some outsmarting others and building themselves power bases from which to dominate. So how do we develop inclusive communities in which we can all thrive? Maybe rules that ensure decent jobs for all is a part of it, but that seems a small foundation upon which to build trusting communities. Communities are not created on economic criteria alone, and we need to look much more closely at ourselves before rushing off to create externals like sets of rules. We need to look into how we are thinking, our whole mindset. And that, of course, is where our program comes in. From a Buddhist point of view, the firmest foundation to build caring communities is compassion and love. If we lack these two, no matter how many rules we dream up, no matter how many jobs we provide, it is unlikely that our communities will be inclusive or avoid becoming dysfunctional. As one teacher said, don't keep papering over the cracks in samsara. It may be very unfashionable to talk about love and compassion, but these two are crucial if we really want to bring happiness to ourselves and others. I have used this quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama before, but it is so relevant that it's worth repeating, perhaps many times. He says, From my own limited experience, I found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater our own sense of well-being becomes. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. This helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have and gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we encounter. It is the ultimate source of success in life. As long as we live in this world, we are bound to encounter problems. If at such times we lose hope and become discouraged, we diminish our ability to face difficulties. If, on the other hand, we remember that it is not just ourselves, but everyone who has to undergo suffering, this more realistic perspective will increase our determination and capacity to overcome troubles. Indeed, with this attitude, each new obstacle can be seen as yet another valuable opportunity to improve our mind. 
Thus we can strive gradually to become more compassionate. That is, we can develop both genuine sympathy for others' suffering and the will to help remove their pain. As a result, our own serenity and inner strength will increase. Ultimately, the reason why love and compassion bring that greatest happiness is simply that our nature cherishes them above all else. The need for love lies at the very foundation of human existence. It results from the profound interdependence we all share with one another. However capable and skillful an individual may be, left alone, he or she will not survive. However vigorous and independent one may feel during the most prosperous periods of life, when one is sick or very young or very old, one must depend on the support of others. Interdependence, of course, is a fundamental law of nature. Not only higher forms of life, but also many of the smallest insects are social beings who, without any religion, law or education, survive by mutual cooperation based on an innate recognition of their interconnectedness. The most subtle level of material phenomena is also governed by interdependence. All phenomena from the planet we inhabit to the oceans, clouds, forests and flowers that surround us arise in dependence upon subtle patterns of energy. Without their proper interaction, they dissolve and decay. It is because our own human existence is so dependent on the help of others that our need for love lies at the very foundation of our existence. Therefore, we need a genuine sense of responsibility and a sincere concern for the welfare of others. That's His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And it is this sincere concern and the responsibility that comes with it that will truly build the kind of communities that Lapay envisages. And then any rules we agree upon will truly make for the well-being of all. And now we've gone on long enough without at least acknowledging our motivation for being here together today. As we have talked about the elimination of fear and violence through the development of love and compassion, let's remember that. But take our concern even further, even to the generation of bodhicitta, the wish to gain enlightenment, to alleviate all the discomfort of all living beings. Let this be a cause for creating the ultimate, all-inclusive, all-compassionate community. Thank you. Now, after that rather lengthy introduction for the need for compassion and love, it would probably be a good thing for us to get back to the text we've been considering over the last few programs, Lama Tsongkhapa's Three Principal Aspects of the Path. In particular, we've been looking at the second aspect, bodhicitta, and I hope you can see the relevance of what we've said so far in the program to that. In a way, bodhicitta is the ultimate in compassion, and if we could approach our fellow beings with this great intention, we could not possibly be worried about fear or rejection. What did that inmate say? I've got to have my self-respect, and I've declared war on the whole world till I get it. Wow! War on the whole world! Considering the situation he's in, wouldn't he be better enhancing his compassion? And then there would be no need for any type of war. But with Bodhicitta, he would only be waging peace. In any case, in our last program, we ended up talking about great compassion as the fifth cause of the six cause and one effect meditation to develop bodhicitta. If you remember, the six causes are seeing all beings as one's mother, remembering their kindness, 
wishing to repay the kindness, great love, that's the wish to bring them all happiness, great compassion, the wish to relieve them of all suffering, and the great resolve. Our wish is centered on all six realms of existence in the Buddha's cosmology, that is, the hells, hungry ghosts, animals, humans, azures, and gods. And that is why the love and compassion in this meditation are called great love and great compassion, because they're not only for those beings we like and get on with. The love and compassion are for every single sentient being, no matter how deranged or unattractive they may appear. Now here I must stress that great compassion necessarily starts with compassion for ourselves. I've said this before, but it bears repeating, as we are often very good at giving ourselves a hard time. Dr. Kristen Neff, Associate Professor of Human Development and Culture at the University of Texas at Austin, is a leading researcher on self-compassion in the world. She identifies three components of self-compassion. Self-kindness versus self-judgment, a sense of common humanity versus isolation, and mindfulness versus over-identification. She says, Self-kindness refers to the tendency to be caring and understanding with oneself rather than being harshly critical or judgmental. Instead of taking a cold, stiff upper lip approach in terms of suffering, self-kindness offers soothing and comfort to the self. Common humanity involves recognizing that all humans are imperfect, fail and make mistakes. It connects one's own flawed condition to the shared human condition so that greater perspective is taken towards personal shortcomings and difficulties. Mindfulness, the third component of self-compassion, involves being aware of one's present moment experience in a clear and balanced manner so that one neither ignores nor ruminates on disliked aspects of oneself or one's life. Compassion can be extended towards the self when suffering occurs through no fault of one's own, when the external circumstances of life are simply painful or difficult to bear. Self-compassion is equally relevant, however, when suffering stems from one's own foolish actions, failures or personal inadequacies. She then goes on, Research indicates that self-compassion is strongly associated with psychological well-being. Higher levels of self-compassion are linked to increased feelings of happiness, optimism, curiosity and connectedness, as well as decreased anxiety, depression, rumination and fear of failure. While lay people often express the worry that if they are too self-compassionate, they will undermine their motivation or become self-indulgent, this does not appear to be the case. Self-compassion involves the desire for the self's health and well-being and is associated with greater personal initiative to make needed changes in one's life. Because self-compassionate individuals do not berate themselves when they fail, they are more able to admit mistakes, modify unproductive behaviors, and take on new challenges. In a study of self-compassion in classroom settings, for instance, we found that self-compassion was positively associated with mastery goals for learning and negatively associated with performance goals. Thus, self-compassionate individuals are motivated to learn and grow, but for intrinsic reasons, not because they want to garner social approval. Neff makes a distinction between self-esteem and self-compassion and says that although Western psychology makes a big deal out of good self-esteem, self-compassion 
has many of its benefits, but fewer of its pitfalls. What she calls the dark side of self-esteem includes narcissism, and she mentions Generation Me in America, which refers to, and I quote, the steady and consistent rise in narcissism levels amongst American college students documented since the mid-1960s. She also says that a focus on self-esteem can also lead to the better-than-average effect, that is, the need to feel superior to others just to feel okay about oneself. It is not acceptable to be average in Western society, so people tend to blow themselves up in their own eyes. Pretty much everyone walks around wearing rose-colored glasses, at least when they're looking in the mirror, says Neff, and goes on, This comparative dynamic, however, the tendency to puff oneself up and put others down, creates interpersonal distance and separation that undermines connectedness. Even the benefits touted for self-esteem may not work, she says, and quotes a study that showed, Self-esteem does not appear to improve academic or job performance, to improve leadership skills, or to prevent children from smoking, drinking, taking drugs, and engaging in early sex. Self-compassion, on the other hand, she has found, not dealing in self-evaluations or social comparisons, appears to foster psychological benefits without the negative effects associated with enhanced self-esteem. She quotes her own experimental research, which found that, when compared to tray levels of self-esteem, Self-compassion was associated with more non-contingent and stable feelings of self-worth over time, while also offering stronger protection against social comparison, public self-consciousness, self-rumination, anger, and close-mindedness. Furthermore, in direct contrast to self-esteem, self-compassion was found to have no association with narcissism. She found self-compassion particularly helpful in the troublesome teen years, teens with strong maternal support, harmonious families and secure attachments had more self-compassion, while the more egocentric a teen was, the less self-compassionate he or she was. The way a family functions has an impact on whether a teen develops self-compassionate or self-critical internal dialogues. She also claims that self-compassion is strongly associated with emotional intelligence and wisdom. This all bears out the Buddha's teaching that self-love and self-compassion are very important. No one is more deserving of your love and compassion than you are yourself, he said. And so even when we think of great compassion, we shouldn't forget ourselves. My teacher also told me that when I think of all sentient beings, I should not forget myself, for I too am a sentient being. Now, once we've really generated compassion for ourselves, we can go on to generate it for all others in the six realms, as Tupton Children explained in the last program. You might remember she described how a mental state that we habituate ourselves to has the potential to create a body similar to itself if we die under the influence of that state. She ended our last program with an allegory about the addicted mind leading to a hungry ghost experience. If you have an addiction to alcohol or to shopping or whatever, if you die and that addiction predominates on your mind, what type of body do you think you'll take in your next life? It'll be a body driven by that addiction, and so you take the form of a hungry ghost. Tipton Children reminds us that the body is just a shell and reflects what the mind is doing. 
She compares the process to a cartoonist's drawing in which the cartoonist exaggerates or distorts the body of his subject to demonstrate some peculiarity of behavior or trait of that subject. Often cartoonists will do that with politicians they want to satirize, and you must have seen that. In any case, karma is like the cartoonist, and when we have a dominant mindset, it fashions a body to fit. Tipton Children says, They're very exaggerated. They all look somewhat human, but they're trying to express through the body what the mind state is. Well, that's the same thing that happens with all these mental states. If you die with that kind of mental state, or if it's very well habituated, your body just matches it. So think about that, and then start generating compassion for the beings who live in that kind of body, and that kind of mind, and that kind of realm, which is a product of their own karma, a product of their own mental afflictions, and begin to generate compassion for them. This is what enables us to have compassion for that fly, because flies are pretty ignorant. So if you're a human being, and what you do when you come home from work is you sit down in front of the TV set with half a gallon of ice cream and flick the channels, or with a bag of potato chips and space out and flip the channels, and that's all you do. Isn't that kind of a fly's mind? Think about that mind. That mind is too lazy for the body to get up and move. It just presses the buttons to flick the channels. The fly's mind is moving just as rapidly, isn't it? It's going from here to there, from the strawberries to whatever it is that it flies around on. Never satisfied, totally ignorant. We have a precious human life with a precious human body, and are we making use of it? Or are we, by the way that we live our life, actually creating the cause to be born as a fly in the future? And what's that mind like? When you're sitting in front of the TV with a bag of potato chips flicking channels, are you happy? Think about it for a minute. Are you happy? No, you're not happy. What's going to make you happy? Is sitting there flicking the channels from one violent, sexy story to another, is that going to make you happy? No. What's going to make you happy? I think this is where opening our heart and connecting with living beings comes in. Offering service and being involved in worthwhile activities and worthwhile projects putting our energy in a good way that helps society, that helps the Dharma, meditating on cultivating a good heart. These are things that bring happiness and internal peace. We can begin to see how karma works, how our mental state is reflected in our behavior. That behavior is karma. It leaves residual energy, karmic seeds. The disintegratedness of the action gets left behind. Then that ripens into what we experience and into the body that we are attracted to. So that process exists for us. It exists for other living beings too. When we really spend some time thinking about it, real compassion can come up because we really begin to understand what suffering is. We really begin to understand what it means to have a mind under the influence of ignorance, anger and attachment. Then this feeling, may I be free of suffering, may you be free of suffering, really comes strongly. You don't want to harm anybody anymore because you realize that people already and animals already and everybody already has enough suffering. What's the use of retaliating? Instead, we wish for happiness for ourselves and others and want to put the time and energy into cultivating it. So there you have it. 
With that, I'll have to leave you as time is now up. Thank you for being with the program today and please come back next week. As we go, let's dedicate any positive potential from our time together today to the enlightenment of all living beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.